Well, welcome to the fourth week in the season of Easter. We are still in a sermon series called Grace, but here off the top, I would like to announce again this same photography exhibit slash contest. It is called Images of Hope During a Pandemic. Images of Hope During a Pandemic. And so if you would uh, send those pictures in to uh, photo at okcfirst.com. And that would be great if you would do that. We just are hoping to get our photographers involved in going out there and capturing these images of resurrection hope. And we are sure that they're out there. We've already gotten several pictures in, some really compelling pictures. So please send those in to photo at okcfirst.com by May 11th. And so we are several weeks into a pandemic. And I got to be honest, many of us desperately need haircuts desperately need haircuts. My friend Jason Smith likes to get a haircut like every three and a half hours or so, and he hasn't been able to get one in weeks. So uh, we all are looking for haircuts. This is why this story caught my eye this week. Uh, Another sheep was found in the Australian outback, having been lost for about six years or so, six years or so. And once he was found, uh, it did look like he needed, pretty desperately needed a haircut. Turns out, that he is one of three sheep here in recent memory who were actually lost somewhere in Australia or New Zealand, lost for about six years, and when found, were in desperate need uh, of being shorn. This is on your screen right here. You have three pictures left to right. That is Sheila, and then that is Sean there in the middle, and that is Shrek the sheep there on the right, and I do not know who that man is in that same picture. But I do have a little video here that will walk us through what it was like for Sean to be shorn uh, when he was finally rescued. He couldn't see very well because of the wool over his face, so I just stuck up behind him and, and grabbed hold of him. Then we went, Nettie and I went and got the ute and put him in the back of the ute. And... Strong animal for that. Usually they get cast and can't get up or they get fly-struck, or the hot weather gets to them. Yeah, well, Eastern Highlands, they do call it. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. Just could not believe that a sheep could have so much wool. It's long. It's the longest I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, I thought it would be almost impossible for a sheep to go that long and have that such good wool on it. Three or four jump, jumpers pullovers in there. Reports say that Sean the sheep, there was some evidence that he had actually been attacked by wolves, but it looks like the wolves kind of gave up because they couldn't get through all the wool. In the sermon today, we are going to be likened to the sheep. We are going to be the sheep. Now, you're going to have to sort of uh, let yourself understand that that is not a pejorative term. That's not not a demeaning term. We are the sheep of God's pasture. That's okay. And we, at some point later on in the sermon, are going to understand ourselves as participating in the work of shepherding and maybe even in being the gate for these same sheep. But in order to really receive this text and receive the sermon today, you have to understand that sheep is not a pejorative term. Shepherds cared for sheep. The best kinds of shepherds, and this is throughout history, but especially during the times that these gospel texts would have been written, the best shepherds knew their sheep. They knew their sheep very well, knew them by name, and would, were, were willing to sacrifice for those same sheep. That's what this, this passage of Scripture is going to try to communicate today. But in order to get the gist of 
chapter 10 in the Gospel of John, we kind of have to go back. Now keep in mind, the original text did not have verse numbers or chapter numbers, and so sometimes what you see separated in your Bible is not meant to be separated. You're supposed to read from chapter 9, actually, in the story of the, the man blind from birth who was finally healed, but then ultimately kicked out of the synagogue. You're supposed to read these verses along with that story. So let me give you a little bit of a tip uh, once we get to chapter 10, just know that the verses that you've already heard Chesney read, those words were fighting words where the Pharisees were concerned. That was a huge critique leveled at the Pharisees, these religious leaders who should have known better. They should have known better that they were shepherds intended to care for sheep and that they weren't caring for sheep very well. So let's walk through this story. There was a man who was blind from birth, blind from birth, sitting along the side of the road. Jesus comes by, see this man, sees this man blind from birth, and he says, okay, I think I'm going to do something for this man. I'm going to do something. But the disciples jumped in first and they said, Rabbi, now we see that this man is blind from birth. So let's talk theology, Jesus. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus, probably hiding his frustration with their question, said, okay, neither one, neither one. This man was born blind so that you all could see God do something here and now in and through me. Then Jesus spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, now go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And then he went and washed, and this man, blind from birth, came back seeing now, the other people in the town who knew this to be the man blind from birth, who always sat beside the road begging, were asking questions like, what happened? How, how did this happen? How were your eyes opened? And finally, the man answered, okay, this guy named Jesus, named Jesus he, he made some mud, he spread it on my eyes, and he said, just go wash in the pool. And then I went and washed, and I received my sight. But where is he? They asked him. And he said, I don't know. He, he's gone. And then, according to verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees this man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. And so the Pharisees, now noticing that someone had broken one of these sacred Sabbath rules, they were angry. And they were more angry about the rule being broken than they were gratified that the man had received his sight. So the Pharisees began to ask this blind man how he received his sight, and he said to them, this guy, he put mud on my eyes, and then I wash, and now I see. Verse 16, but some of the Pharisees said, this man can't be from God, for he does not observe, observe the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided as a crowd. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the blind man said, look, I think he's a prophet. I think he's a miracle worker. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, okay, is this really your son, the one that you say was born blind? So then how does he now see? And the parents answered, yes, this is our son, and we know for a fact that he was born blind. But we don't know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. He's a big boy. Ask him. He will speak for himself. Now, his parents said this. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. 
The Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue, which was a terrible thing in that day and age. To be put out of the synagogue was really to lose your lease on life. That was your main support system. And to lose that spot in the society, understood as a synagogue society, was going to be a blow to your life and your livelihood. And so they said, listen, we don't know. He's a big boy. He can answer for himself. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man, the Pharisees did, they called the man who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this Jesus character is a sinner. Now the blind man had had enough. He answered, listen, I don't know whether or not he's a sinner, but one thing I do know, I used to be blind and now I can see. They said to him, now what did he do again? How was it that he opened your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you several times already, and you did not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Is this because you're interested in becoming disciples as well? (laughs) Verse 28, then they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Now, we will come back to this Moses character because I would submit that even in saying this, these Pharisees misunderstood Moses. More importantly, they misunderstood the law that came through Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. (laughs) The blind man shoots back. Now, that is an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened the eyes of a man born blind. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he does listen to those who worship and obey his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. Now they're really angry. Verse 34, they answered him, you, sir, were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? And then they tossed him out of the synagogue. They risked his life by cutting him out of society. Jesus heard about this, heard that he had been tossed out, went looking for this man and found him. And he said, sir, do you believe in the son of man? The formerly blind man answered, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him now. And the one speaking with you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. And then Jesus says something that is incredibly scary. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. That's the good part. And that those who do see may become blind. That's the scary part. Now, some of the Pharisees heard him say this. And they said to him, wait a minute, are you talking about us? Surely you're not saying that we are blind. And Jesus said, no, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, oh, we can see, then your sin remains. Now we get to our verses. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold, remember the blind man, his parents, and all the people around were part of God's sheepfold. Anyone does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way as a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Thieves and and bandits. To whom is Jesus referring here? Is he referring to these Pharisees? Probably so. 
but he's also referring to all of those who would have been bad leaders, false leaders, bad shepherds where the people of God are concerned. Perhaps he was talking about these revolutionary leaders, uh, maybe people like the Zealots. Remember, we had a disciple named Simon the Zealot. <clears throat> maybe he was talking about them. They were all ready to go to war with Rome. And by the way, some of them did go to war with Rome and it did not turn out well. Maybe he was talking about those people as bad leaders, bad shepherds. Or maybe he was talking about these other people, kind of like Pharisees, who were all too eager to submit to Rome, to curtail faith so that they could fit with the Roman Empire. Maybe he's talking about those people. They too had earned the title of bad shepherds. Essentially, the question Jesus is asking is this. How will you know your true king, the good shepherd, when he comes around? Now, this imagery of sheep and shepherds, of leaders and those that they would lead being referred to as sheep and shepherds, this is not new to the book of John. In fact, it's probably borrowed from the book of Ezekiel. Now, we have been in the book of Ezekiel not too long ago. We were back in Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. Three chapters ahead of that, God is angry, and God is angry at these bad shepherds, these bad leaders who have taken God's people, the sheep, and placed them in harm's way. In fact, rather than feeding the sheep, these bad shepherds were eating the sheep. Verse 2 here in chapter 34. Mortal, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Verse 4. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness, force and harshness, you have ruled them. And so my people were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered, says God, all over the face of the earth with no one to search or seek them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, okay then, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep, says God. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered by these bad shepherds on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Skipping all the way down to verse 31. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So that's where all of this sheep and shepherd imagery comes from. Now let's go back to chapter 10 in the Gospel of John. Jesus still talking to the entire crowd, but knowing that these Pharisees were listening in. Verse 3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, for God. And the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Can you hear the intimacy that exists, the relationship that exists between a good shepherd and that good shepherd's sheep? Now, I don't know anything about shepherding. I just don't. But I've read a lot about ancient shepherding. And it seems that even to this day, even to this day, shepherds have the capacity to know their sheep, to identify their sheep, even when they're amongst a larger crowd of sheep, 
In fact, it seems that sheep have the capacity to recognize their shepherd's voice. So it seems like a whole bunch of sheep, lots of different shepherd's sheep can be in the same pen. And when the good shepherd goes and just says, okay, it's time for my group to go, it seems that that sheep have the capacity to discern between the voices of different shepherds and to follow the right sheep because that particular shepherd has put in the work, perhaps has sacrificed much, and invested in these sheep. Jesus is saying, I am the best kind of leader. I am the best kind of shepherd. I will help my sheep. I will support my sheep. I will lead them out. Jesus says down in verse 7, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. Now this is very interesting. Sometimes these sheep pens were attached to a house. Sometimes the, the shepherd would, would drive all of these sheep home or would have them there at home and then put them into this little pen next to the house. But sometimes they had to build a makeshift pen somewhere out in the pasture somewhere. And sometimes it was the shepherd himself who would lay down and would physically be the gate for the sheep. This is how a shepherd can be both shepherd and gate. And so, the shepherd, when he would lay down and would become the gate, could start to monitor the coming and the going of the sheep. In fact, he would be the way that the sheep would have access to the outside world where all the sustenance is, but also he would be the barrier that would keep the wolves, let's say, from coming into the pen. Jesus is saying, I care for my sheep. I will lay down and be the gate for my sheep. I will mediate their understanding and their experience in the world. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus says. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, and have it abundantly. We've been using the language of resurrection grace. Resurrection grace throughout this particular series. It started on Easter Sunday, and I said this to you. Resurrection grace comes in your darkest moment. I said to you the next week, resurrection grace shows up and does its best work when we struggle to believe. This past week, I said this to you, resurrection grace shows up to make sense of the best and the worst of life. It shows up to make sense of our lives. I would say this to you this week, a couple things actually. Resurrection grace is interested in life here and now. Here and now. Resurrection grace is not overly consumed with life hereafter somewhere else. Resurrection grace is concerned with life here and now and, and, Resurrection grace resources that life for the here and the now. God raised Jesus from the dead. Something changed in a fundamental sort of way about how all of life is knit together. What works, what doesn't work. All of that was challenged and overcome in Christ's death and resurrection. Christ's resurrection is supposed to affect change in the here and the now, the way that we live our lives, even in the midst of a pandemic. Resurrection grace is what, here's what I want to say to you today. Resurrection grace shows up and does its best work 
sometimes when you show up, when I show up, when we show up, have you noticed how often in the Gospel of John, how often Christ seems to be willing to give some of this work away, or at least to, at the very least, to partner with his people? Even says this at one point, someday, someday, with the help of the Spirit, you will do even greater things than I am doing. It says in John chapter 15, I no longer call, call you servants, but I call you friends because servants don't know the master's business. Later on, Jesus will say this to Mary. Don't hang on to me right here in this moment of resurrection because I, at some point, am going to have to go back to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Later in chapter 21, in a Pentecost moment, it's what we said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive this breath, this spirit, this wind that will resource you and give you the capacity to do the things that you have seen me do. Later on in chapter 21, chapter 21, Jesus is challenging Simon Peter. And with every challenge, he asks this question, do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Simon Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, okay, if you love me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take care of the sheep. Feed the sheep. Take care of the sheep. Minister to the sheep as you have seen me minister to the sheep. In other words, the Gospel of John is trying to say what Paul says in all of Paul's writing. Paul says it like this. Christ has a body. It's the church. Christ has a body. It's the church. But that's not just unique to Paul. Jesus is trying to say at the top of his lungs throughout the Gospel of John. There is work to be done. Given the resurrection and the resources afforded us in the resurrection, there is work to be done. And by the way, you have all the resources you need to go do this work. What work is it? The exact same work that you see me doing, says Jesus. Working and challenging and investing and coaxing and coaching and nourishing so that there can be better life, not somewhere in the hereafter, but in the here and now. Church, we are challenged to spread the gospel, the good news, resurrection, life, and grace, and hope. We are given all the resources we need. We don't have to leave things broken. We are part of the means whereby God wants to bring healing to all of creation. To all of creation. We talked about Moses earlier. Let's go back to Moses. And in fact, let's go back to Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, we have talked about this a little bit. Some of you may not have heard me rant and rave about this, but you're about to. The, the Ten Commandments given to us in Exodus 20, another place in Scripture, we miss the point when we see these as individual measurements of personal piety. That seems to be what these Pharisees were, were saying all the way back in, in our sermon today in, in John chapter 9. They seem to be saying, ah, oh, Jesus is disqualified because he has broken one of these Ten Commandments, one of these central tenets of the Torah, the law. And because he has broken one of these, he is no longer, individually speaking, he is no longer worthy to be one of us. But I would submit to you that the vision in the Ten Commandments, embedded in the Ten Commandments, is not that we would be measured in an individualistic sorts of ways. These aren't individualistic measurements. These aren't measures of personal piety, but they are standards of life 
for an entire body of believers who want to be understood as God followers, the people of God, the body of Christ. These are the measurements of a healthy and a godly society. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I do have a few of them I want to bring your attention. And I want you to hear them as if they are lenses on corporate health, body health, societal health. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, that's a big one. You shall have no other gods before me. No other ideology, no other theology, no other person or power should be calling the shots and ordering your steps but me, says God. Can I ask us this as church people? Is anyone else other than the God we see reflected in the face of Christ? Is anything else or anyone else calling the shots? Another one. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Oh, this is one of my favorites to talk about. No graven images, nothing made of stone, nothing made of wood, nothing made of a precious metal, nothing that you can reach out and touch because it's the people of God who are supposed to now be the tangible, touchable presence of God. It was true all the way back in the Old Testament. It is especially true now for those of us in the body of Christ. How about this one in the midst of a pandemic? Honor your father and mother. Now, this doesn't just mean that you're supposed to do everything that they say. In fact, there is a better, deeper meaning than just do everything that your mom and dad tell you. It's this. Honor those who have gone before you. Care for them. They are no less important to your society, to a godly society. They are no less important because they are older. Honor your father and mother. The last one. This is not a throwaway commandment just because it's the 10th. You shall not covet a godly, healthy society. A godly, healthy church lives not coveting one another's stuff, but we live out of this sense of gratitude. And when we live out of a sense of gratitude and not in this grabby, snatching sort of a covetousness, then we give. Then we serve. Then we help. And you have helped. (laughs) and you have given, and you have served. We have a lot, after telling you just a week ago that our hope box was virtually empty because we had, we served 50 different families, family units last week. I, we, our, our shelves are really at risk of collapsing underneath the weight of all that you brought. It took folks multiple days just to clean all that you brought so that we could continue to serve families at risk. Any family that can get to us, we want to try to help. Not just because we're trying to preserve someone for heaven somewhere out there in the future, but because we understand, given the vision of the Ten Commandments, given the vision of Christ, we understand that we're supposed to be here spreading a gospel message, which is about here and now and quality of life. Church, even in the midst of a pandemic, we are asked to be good neighbors. We are asked to be good shepherds. We are asked to be good shepherds. Not too long ago, um, our nonprofit, which is called Our Neighborhood Empowered, applied for and received a grant, a grant to continue to do what we're doing. But it's because, I think, they so regularly and so well put skin and flesh on this desire to improve life, not just care for souls, but care for lives. 
Our Neighborhood Empowered is a nonprofit that works on the northwest side of Oklahoma City. And we partner with our neighbors. This part of the city is very interesting because when you're on Northwest Expressway, you don't really see the hidden pockets of poverty. There's not a lot of resources available for people who need it the most. The most unique and inspiring thing to me that I've noticed is the connections that one has had with um, apartments, different apartment complexes and the relationships that they have built with these people, you know, like having trust, consistency, love, patience. It's not just a one-sided um, relationship. It's a mutual thing. And what we found there is that we didn't take God to that community, but we just found him already at work there. So what we're trying to do now is just really help reveal what has already been working long before us and will be working long after us. Currently our programs are focused on the after-school programs for the kindergarten through 12th grade. So many of our students have obstacles that they face. One of the things that we see most prevalent in the students we work with is um, literacy. I think flourishing means for them to be able to read fluently, be excited about school, to succeed in school. I love working with kids. I love being that advocate or that voice, it's helping them realize that you do have a voice when I'm not just connecting with the students, I'm connecting with the parents as well. And then our adult resources are um, connecting them with other organizations who are already providing those services. We can't do this alone. We really are stronger together and when we learn from places who are doing things and aren't reinventing the wheel, that's when we really serve the community in a better way. Flourishing means to me equal opportunities and equal justice. It doesn't matter if um, what color you are, what culture you come from. If we believe in this, then I feel like we should just act on one thing that I just think is so beautiful about the people we work with is they are so resilient and so compassionate for each other. If we had the same concern for our neighbor and our neighbor's kids as we do for our own home and our own kids, then it would look a lot different. One is us a really safe place in a really genuine place. To learn more about Our Neighborhood Empowered, you can visit our website or come by for a tour. God's mind about this neighborhood is made up and the news is good. And we're just trying to participate and reveal um, the kingdom here on earth with him. Now you might be saying, great. I'm glad that we have an organization that's, that's designed to help in our neighborhood here, the neighborhood that's right here around the church. But what about my neighborhood? I drive in from Edmond, or I drive in from Yukon, or I drive in 10 minutes. What, 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 what can I do? That's a great question, because you are no less responsible and no less called to improve the quality of life wherever you can reach. So right there around where you live, right there around where you work, right there around where you go to school, you're no less called to do that. I have a friend named Doug Servan who pastors over at City Prez, downtown-ish or so. And not too long ago, he put a tool out for his people. And it's a little form, and we're actually going to make it available to you. You'll be able to download it, or we'll probably send it to you one way or another. But it simply says, how can we help? It says, hi, I'm your neighbor. Here's my name. Here's my number. Do you need something? Here's how you can reach me. And we should do that. We should take advantage of these opportunities to check in on our neighbors. 
We should do these things. We, we, should, we, should mind, we should be careful to make sure that we care just as much for people's physical needs as we would care for their spiritual needs. In fact, no one's going to believe that you care for their spiritual needs if you don't care for their, spiritual, if if you don't care for their physical needs. Can we be the church that recognizes that souls are always somehow encased in bodies that are in need of food, that are in need of friendship, that are in need of encouragement, that are in need of jobs? I hope you don't sense that somehow as liberal. I hope you don't sense that. I I think it's a part of being a full-bodied church that practices a full-bodied gospel. When we put these tools in your hand, and I, by that I mean, yes, our neighborhood empowered, and we want you to help and volunteer and help us do what we're doing. Yes, I also mean the Hope Box. Thank you so much for being, for being a, a tangible expression of God's grace. But I also mean your neighbors, the one that drive you crazy. I'm also talking about the people that you work with. I'm talking about you being a tangible expression of the hope of the resurrection. I'm talking about you being a tangible expression of resurrection grace. Remember, Resurrection grace arrives on the scene and does its best work sometimes when you show up, when we show up, when I show up for my neighbors. So here's this little tool, and hopefully you'll be able to use it, find some ideas to know how we can continue to be the good kinds of shepherds now that we're the body of Christ. Then we need to take on this shepherd's role and find a way to make good use of the resurrection resources that we've been granted. I'm going to pray for us a brief prayer of confession before turning it over to my friend Jason Smith, who will take us through prayers of confession and petition. So let's pray together now.